Hi, this is Aaron Azarod, and welcome to the 32nd episode of the Truth Island podcast. The religion that we are born to, much like our parents, hair color, or height, is something that remains largely outside the realm of our control. Some of us can remember leaving school early, attending church, synagogue, or mosque on a given Sunday, and being given religious instruction. This religious instruction can start as young as the age of five or six, and often the tenets of a given faith are taught to children in a very factual manner, in which the interpretation often conforms to the particular viewpoint of a certain denomination, or even the specific religious house. It's also important to mention that religious instruction for most begins while children are still in the pre-operational or concrete operation modes of thinking, according to child psychologist PIJ. Thus, it may be difficult for children to grasp highly abstract concepts and ideas during the formation of their religious development. As a person becomes older and starts heading into the formal operation stage of development in their late teens or early 20s, coupled with a college education, which may expose them to points of view and beliefs that they had not been exposed to in youth, they may embark upon a mini existential crisis where they question their beliefs, part of their beliefs, or abandon religion altogether. However, what if a person through exposure and self-exploration comes to find beauty in another way of thinking but at the same time maintains an appreciation for the ways in which they were originally raised. Joining me to make sense of this issue is Daniel. Daniel, can you perhaps share your religious journey over the years with us? Hello, thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me on, uh, of course. So I grew up Catholic. I had a father who um, was Catholic and my mother was not, which was interesting, but we went to church every Sunday. And I remember quite fondly going to church every Sunday with my sister and my two parents and going to children's service as a child. And we got those very colorful handouts that have the biblical story of the day, usually dealing with Jesus. (laughs) And there's a lot of filial moments and nostalgia that I have associated with the church. And like you brought up in the beginning, Although I wasn't able to necessarily process those abstract ideas, such as where did we come from? Where are we going after we die? What does it mean to be a good person? I thought it was still very useful, especially in hindsight, to be at least interacting with them, Mm. to be confronted with them. Like I remember so distinctly thinking about that story of um, Jesus telling a merchant that it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to give up my Xbox if I want to go to heaven. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) Daniel, Daniel, let me ask you this question. When you kind of pose these questions, and this actually fluctuates, there's actually some uh, religious institutions that are very like liberal or very relaxed with different interpretations. How Mm. did your religious instructors respond? Did they say, no, you have to think of it this way? Or did they kind of entertain some of the uh, philosophical inquiry that was going on through your head? Yeah, I think the general answer from the church is that, well, like Roman Catholic churches, well, the church, what the church says goes. We don't believe in sola scriptura, which is Bible alone. That's not enough, at least according Mm. to the Catholics. We need the church. And the church isn't necessarily a building. It's uh, the people, the people who made, who comprise the church. The general answer to your question is, it's the ch- what the church says goes. This is what it is. But in reality, when you're actually interacting with individuals, whether it's priests, whether it's youth leaders, whether it's fellow parishioners, I think it's as unique as the people are. It depends. Some people are hardlining. Some people are really not. That's part of what's interesting about operating within the Catholic space, because mm. technically we're all supposed to kind of believe the same thing, but then, well, you talk to some people who only go to church on Easter and Christmas and they think that's fine. Or you talk to some other people about premarital sex and whether or not that's okay. And so, yeah, it's as unique as, as it is um, the people. That and, are and that's, and that's one of the benefits of having like a multitude of different thinkers and in different um, instructors. So you might have like one lady when you were in third grade who had a very textbook kind of interpretation. And then maybe mm-hmm. you had some 
guy in fifth grade who was a little bit more loose or a little bit more open-ended. And I think, I think it's good for kids to have these different adult figures that, that kind of allow different levels of exploration. I just think that's mm-hmm. like really healthy. Yeah. And I think a fair question to ask though, is that, yes, I'm interacting with all these people that approach the interpretation differently, but we're all drawing from the same source in the same community. We're all still mm. Catholic. Yeah. So you could critique it and say, well, yes, I'm getting all this variety, but you're getting all of this variety within a predetermined kind of space, the same kind of underlying principle. So it's almost like this, this faux diversity of thought when really, well, we all still believe in this. And so we're also united by that, which was, you know, maybe a good segue into talking about the, the, the Catholic public school system that I, that I went to in high school. So it's interesting when you talk about the existential dilemma that you face. Um, so the Xbox one was definitely the first one. Uh, the, sec- the second one such was- such a good you know, kid. I feel like you were such a good kid. You're like, how many kids are like, should I give up my Xbox? <laughs> well, it's because I, I was confronted with like, okay, materialism. You know, like yeah. how old am I? I'm probably like what, eight, eight, nine years old or something. And it's like, materialism, you need to be wary of. There's more, like you can't take anything with you. Die, your soul is naked before the Lord. And I go- that means there's no Xbox in heaven. Am I going to be okay with that? You know, <laughs> so you should have said that, you won't need Xbox in heaven. Yeah, I, I think exactly. that's that's the right. <laughs> that 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 would have been a better way to quell my my uh, you know my existential dread that I developed <laughs> as a as a, as a young child. But the second one kind of came um, when I was trying to. Uh, be confirmed. So in the Catholic church, you need to be confirmed. After you're baptized, you're kind of baptized without your consent. You're a baby, you're Catholic, but you're not really Catholic until you confirm that you're Catholic when you're in grade eight. So in grade eight, we took basically Bible study classes. And I took those so seriously. I was studying. I was, I read every children's Bible that I could cover to cover. I knew every single story, Old Testament and New Testament. I was, I know, I knew the Psalms. I knew the Proverbs. I knew I was the type A, type A kid in my confirmation class. That was, that was interesting because there was this moment where I started thinking, okay, I know all this stuff, but all the kids around me, they don't care. They don't, they're just here because their parents want them here. They're bored. They're cheating. Like they were cheating on their confirmation test. It's like, <laughs> What? Why are you cheating? Like, don't you are naked before the Lord? And so, so with this guy, for for those who don't know, so confirmation mm-hmm. is like, are, are they kind of giving you an option to move forward with Christianity, or mm-hmm. like, is there is there like, is it kind of a formality? Like, can you actually say, actually, you know, at eight years old, I've had enough of this, I, I opt out, or is this kind of just like a formal ritual where you really don't have much of a say to opt out or opt in? That's the very good question to raise because it's supposed to be your choice. It's, and it's, it's grade eight. So I, I think I was, how old would I be? Like around 12 years old or something. Yeah. That's when you as a young adult are supposed to say, I have thought about this. I am going to commit myself to the Catholic church. This is mm. my opportunity to renounce it if I so choose. And that's supposed to be what it's for. But functionally, what it is is well, mom and dad want me to go to St. Aloysius down the street, so I better get confirmed because that school is better than the other public school that's a, that's on the other side of the neighborhood. And if you don't get confirmed, you can't even go to the high school of your choice. Is that how that works? You're supposed to be Catholic to go to a public Catholic school. Um, I didn't at least know. where I am in Canada here. See, yeah. in, in the states, anyone can go to a Catholic school. You don't have to necessarily mm-hmm. be Catholic. I mean, I would imagine that Catholics feel the most comfortable, but I've actually heard stories of people going to Catholic school and there were Jews and Muslims that also, just because the quality of the education was better and, and this was yeah. allowed. So That's this a- is kind of changing. And I, I think I should speak a little bit more carefully because I think policy has been changing and it might even be board dependent to okay. be like district dependent. But it is possible to have... Um, non-Catholic students in a Catholic school. That's definitely possible, especially for a specialized program. Let's say it's an arts Catholic school or it's a, an AP Catholic school or an IB Catholic school. Then it's a lot more likely you'll see non-Catholics in there. But if you want to improve your chances, best be Catholic if you have the opportunity to do it. And you know there are other reasons as well. Like there's maybe social pressure, there's family pressure, but I, can't, I, would, I am not able to think of anybody who declined confirming. 
Like wow. it would be quite, it would be quite ra- radical for someone to do that. Or maybe I just never heard of them or never met them because they didn't come to the confirmation class. That's possible too. But the kind of the idea of it is that you learn about the Bible, you learn about the Catholic church and its teachings, and you get a sponsor who is not part of your family, but who is a fellow Catholic who's willing to say, yes, I confirm this young man or this young woman. They are now a part of the Catholic church. The priest gives you a blessing and you are confirmed with a lot of other people at the same time who are of your age group. And that opens you up to now being an adult mature member of the Catholic church. So, and so I guess with this process, you do kind of have like hair in the game. So like if you, the idea is that not only are you embracing your Catholicism, but you also get admittance to a, a certain high school. So it's not like a pure, like yes or no kind of choice because there is implications on how you decide during this confirmation process. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are, there are lots of implications. Like there are educational implications. There's economic implications in some senses. There's social implications. You know, you'll create a huge rift in your family if you renounce being Catholic because now all of a sudden the whole parish knows about it. And then I go, oh, um, you know, Billy's family, their son didn't get confirmed. That's, that's strange. That's what's going on. You know, it's, there's, there's social implications to it too. So and you're logis- right. And logistical. Yeah, logistical then, ones. Then yeah. you're like, okay, now we have to look for some public school to go to that doesn't really have the art program or the thing that you really want. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, yeah. wow, that's, that's a lot. Wow. Yeah. So I bet, but I mean, the reality is of it is that, you know, of course there are kids like me who are super keeners and who take this opportunity to really become involved in the church. But for unfortunately the mass majority, it's, you know, you know, angsty preteens who just are there because (laughs) their parents want them to be there. Yeah. You know, they don't really care or know what's going on. That was kind of the situation starting out. And this actually draws into like the early days of YouTube. And I'm already feeling old saying this, but when YouTube was first coming out, back in my day when I was a preteen. <laughs> uh, what was this, like 2009, right? 2010? Yeah. One of the, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a big kind of back and forth between creationists and atheists in the intellectual side of early YouTube. Yeah, um, yeah. We had like Dawkins and Harris yes, and the Four yeah. Horsemen. Yeah, that, that was... Yeah, I would say in the early 2000s, that was definitely Mm -hmm. the thing. Yeah. And so that when that was uh, happening on YouTube, I came across one of those videos when I was, you know, in grade eight, grade nine. And I thought, whoa, this is a whole new way of understanding Christianity and Catholicism, because I've never interacted with an atheist before. I have never heard an atheistic argument before. And they were very, very compelling, I have to say. Going through the proofs of God, going for the proofs against God, and just seeing how creationists were really getting pegged and dunked on on almost every single video by these very articulate, well thought out arguments from atheists. And, and people and so, with like PhDs in biology, like like really, exactly. really pounding on the empiricism there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you for whatever reason, YouTube was the perfect breeding ground for that, at least for me when I was observing that. And so that kind of threw the doors open. And one of the, one of the things that I really questioned was, well, I learned in my confirmation class that committing suicide, killing yourself is a mortal sin. It's, Mm. it's, it's something bad, something you shouldn't do. And if you do it, that complicates your ability to get into heaven. Technically, you're not supposed to get into heaven if you kill yourself. So I thought, okay, I, you know, I had, I had somebody in my life that I knew by association, who's, parents had uh, killed themselves. So I thought, okay, that means according to the church that I go to, this person isn't in heaven. They're somewhere else. And so I kind of dug into it. You know, I asked my confirmation leader, I talked to people and I said, okay, well, they're in purgatory from what I understand, the space in between heaven and hell. I thought, okay, they're in purgatory. How do you get out of purgatory? And my confirmation class leader went, well, God works in mysterious ways. I, it's not, and all things aren't revealed to us. We don't really know. And I go, okay, well, if you don't know that step, how do you know the purgatory step? How do you know that they're in purgatory? And so that was kind of one question. And then the follow-up question was, okay, wait, hold on, back up. Adolf Hitler killed himself. So you're telling me that he's not in hell right now? He's, he could be in purgatory? <laughs> if anybody should be in hell, shouldn't Hitler be in hell? And that was kind of you know, the, the first step for me to kind of tear down the whole facade of the Catholic Church around me. And I had this really angsty, existential moment and a lot of dread where I just was so disenfranchised with the church. I wanted nothing to do with it. Mm. I, I didn't like it at all. Of course, I still played with my... Uh, 
youth ministry uh, on violin because I needed the volunteer hours. But yeah. on the inside, I was really, <laughs> uh, I hated everything that was going on. But How does that feel, Daniel? Because I've had mm-hmm. this happen to me as well, where, you know, especially when you're a late teen and, you, you know, in terms of height, you're now kind of taller or, or the yes. same height as the people who taught you. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that, these people can't answer questions in a manner that's satisfactory to your intellectual curiosity. It's almost, it's kind of like a Santa Claus moment, you know, it is. that's exactly it, what a Santa it is. Santa Claus moment because you think adults are smart, adults are good, adults are knowledgeable, and you kind of have that basic thing going through your head. But then I think once you're like the same height as your mom or dad, and then they're not, mm-hmm. you know, giving you, they're not satisfying your intellectual curiosity anymore. It's kind of like, oh, whoa, um, wow. Um, the answers are not all there. There is no yeah. answer book that I was looking for. I think you're right about there being this moment, the Santa Claus moment or the tooth fairy moment where we realize that, yeah, our parents maybe don't, not that they're lying to us, but they don't have the answers. And I think that definitely occurs. It occurred for me recently where, you know, I'm now a young adult, I'm an independent, I'm taking care of myself. And I go, oh, a lot of adults around me, they actually don't really know what's going on either. And that's okay. Everyone's figuring it out on their own. But as a child, you think the adults have everything figured out. They know exactly what to do. But then it's interesting. I, I haven't heard the idea of, well, now that I'm your height, I'm your equal. And <laughs> now I can ask you questions as your equal. And if you can't satisfy me, then something's up. And I think that makes sense. I'd never thought about that before. Start seeing little, like the higher you go, you start seeing these gaps in yes. people's areas of knowledge. And it starts to scare you a little bit. Like, oh, mm-hmm. geez, like you, you, you have a lot, like there's people who have a lot of facts at their disposal, but then you realize that they haven't really dug very deep into those facts. Like they've got mm-hmm. a lot, they've got the, they can quote scripture or they can quote things from history. But then when you dig really deeper into the whys, that's where you start getting into some uh, muddy territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that moment definitely happened to me with my confirmation leader. And that sent me on the path towards hard atheism, borderline nihilism. But then when I went to university and I was kind of away from the church, I wasn't there every week anymore. I really had that space to, you know, not be around my family who would bring me. I actually started to miss it in a certain way. And I didn't miss it for the, I didn't miss it because I missed the spiritual aspect of it, Mm. but I missed other things about it. And I couldn't really pin down what that was. And I think looking back, part of that was the sense of family and the sense of community and the sense of quiet time, just having an hour every week where you're quiet and reflective and thinking about things. I actually really, really missed that. And I came around to appreciating the social utility of the church. I do think that not just the Catholic church, but religions, institutionalized religions in general, provide an invaluable social good to society, generally speaking. Of course, there are many, many, many instances of social ills that have been conducted by institutionalized religions that we should not forget and we should always be wary of. But I really came around from this hard atheism and nihilism into, well, agnosticism, especially once I got deeper into my philosophy studies during my undergrad, had this realization that people have been writing about these questions and ideas for thousands and thousands of years, and they're way smarter than me, and they haven't even figured it out yet. So I'm at the point where I'm thinking, before I decide if I'm pro this or anti that, I'm going to observe and try to figure it out as I go along. I'm not going to put myself necessarily in one camp just yet. And, you know, now that I've kind of come full circle, I'm coming back now. I, I do, I do go to church on my own volition now. And whenever I'm with my family, I always go with my family when I visit them in their hometown. I appreciate it for these other things, especially when I hear this new wave of meditation is going to save your life, being grateful and empathetic, doing random acts of kindness. These are all the things the church told me to do, mm. right? Praying is reflection and meditation and gratefulness. And in the whole pop psychology, pop philosophy world, they're telling us to do these things. Keep a gratitude journal. Well, when you're praying and you're thanking the Lord for all of these things that you have, that's your, that's your gratitude journal right there. So I think there's a lot of good to be found in the church. I think there's a lot of not good to be found in the church as well. And I'm, I think I'm more speaking about institutionalized religion, you know, not necessarily religion as a concept, because I think we're going to get into how those two are really not the same thing and you can interact with them in different ways. Absolutely. Could you share maybe uh, something that you 
have found in your philosophy classes or, or we had spoken offline about uh, Eastern philosophy that you now have incorporated into your um, Christian beliefs? Yeah, for sure. So I think one thing that I got really hung up on in my angsty meaninglessness phase of my teenage years was the fact that, of course, God can't exist because we can't personify a perfect being. If God is perfect, he is omniscient and he is omnipotent. That means he's perfect. So how can he experience anger? How can he experience happy? Why did he get angry at the Jews in the desert? I don't understand that. Why would a perfect being get angry if a perfect being is all things all at the same time? Another thing, how can God have a beard? How can God be a man? How can God have 10 fingers and two legs? He's a perfect being. He can't he would be imperfect by the very notion of us being able to conceive of him. But one thing that I gained from my East Asian philosophies is the idea that God maybe is not this old, big white guy with a beard in the sky. Maybe he is the universe. Maybe he is the reality. Maybe he is everything, or maybe I should be using the word it. It is everything that the universe. And I think maybe it's borrowing a little bit from Brahma or Brahman from Hinduism too. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the idea that, everything is God, that you and I are God, that this microphone in front of me is God, that everything is that thing. And it's kind of hard to talk about. It's kind of, it's also, I think it's been referred to as like the Spinoza version of God, where Mm -hmm. it's sort of a like mental projection of of everything in the universe. But we don't have to get into that right now. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but that's, yeah, I think, I think that's what I am trying to get at that. You don't see, you know, there, Buddhism is a deity-less god. There's no deity. Yes, there's the Buddha, but that's not necessarily what the religion is about. Uh, enlightenment is the, is the goal of Buddhism. So instead of pleasing a god and doing the right things, more about being at one, being as one with the universe in a way that you're satisfied that you're not overly happy and you're not overly despairing. Yes, life is suffering, but you have come to terms with that suffering. And this is my understanding of Buddhism. I'm really interested to hear if you're kind of all all along the same wavelength, if I'm... Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe I should share with the audience my spiritual journey and then we'll we'll link up at Buddhism. (laughs) I was born and raised Jewish. However, I was actually raised something called Reformed Jewish. So in Judaism, Mm -hmm. there's different degrees of... I guess, severity or, or, or um, how strongly you practice. So Orthodox is the highest form of, of Judaism in terms of uh, those would be the people that wear like uh, the, the hats and the, and the, and the uh, dark clothing. And they basically follow Judaism to a T, basically. They follow Shabbat which means they don't use any electricity on Friday nights and on Saturdays. And then there's a a group in the middle called the conservatives. They just wear a yarmulke so that they're not necessarily wearing uh, the full Orthodox outfit. And another distinction is that conservative Jews will will wear a yarmulke, but they'll work in normal occupations. You'll find them being doctors, lawyers, or uh, working in trades or plumbing. And the Orthodox community, there are Orthodox Jews who do work. However, it's mandated by the Torah that they study Torah every single day. So for a lot of these um, Orthodox Jews, it's really, really difficult to have like a full-time profession. Um, they, they might have like part-time jobs or they might help out at the local butchery, but it's really hard to be working 60 hours a week and then study Torah. So where I fall into this is I was a reformed Jew. And Reformed Jew is, I guess we could call it the uh, Jewish by name <laughs> kind, yeah, of, yeah. Kind, of, uh, kind of belief. So a lot of us, uh, you know, don't wear yarmulkes on a, on a daily basis. Like we'll put them on on the high holidays. We will break all the rules and, and we'll eat shrimp or pork when we're not really supposed to. We feel... So <laughs> sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but I've heard of like cultural Jews versus ethnic Jews. Is this a similar kind of thing or is this different? Okay, so I would say that reformed Jews are pretty close to just being cultural Jews, but maybe like I think a cultural Jew would it would probably be like an atheist and have like be like I, I I'm done with all that stuff I completely mm-hmm. denounce that or I don't partake in Judaism at all, whereas mm-hmm. a Reformed Jew still follows the major high holidays. They try their best to eat kosher. Like we we do our best to like avoid things that we shouldn't eat. It's just we're not as like gun ho and we're not as strict to the letter of the law. So we might we might have like a Shabbat dinner on Friday. 
but we might drive to get there, which is like in violation. Like you're not supposed to, in, in the Torah, it says you should not kindle any fire during Shabbat and igniting a car is considered generating electricity or something. So there are, so we were, we were really on the super, super duper relaxed end of the spectrum there. Like, you know, Jewish in name, get bar mitzvahed and, and that's about it. <laughs> well, it's interesting because that's a, that's a similar kind of way that the Catholic church is kind of now like, yes, I get confirmed and yes, I take communion every week, but I plan to use condoms when it's time for me to use condoms. Yeah, right? Yeah. I, that's, that's kind of what it's, what's going to happen. Or um, another thing is, you know, I might forget that I'm not supposed to eat fish on a certain days and I'm going to eat fish or I might not even go to mass. Like that's the, the big thing. You're really supposed to go to mass. And the reality is a lot of Catholics, they don't go to mass regularly, but they still claim to be Catholics. They still, you know, so it's a, it's interesting to kind of see the parallel in between those two communities. Yeah. And I think every religion probably has this kind of um, like, yeah. like super Orthodox version. And then yeah. the, uh, you know, religious light version. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I did go uh, to Hebrew school for about three years. However, let me tell you, Daniel, I, I am not the intellect that I can fashion myself to be today. I was, I was a pretty uh, crappy kid and I mm -hmm. did not like, like I was going to regular school and then my parents were telling me now you need to go to this other school twice a week. And I was not having it. Yeah, I wanted to, it. I wanted to play my uh, Super Nintendo and watch my Dragon Ball Z and not yeah. be bothered with any of this. Funny story on Sundays, I, I would have Hebrew school at nine o'clock. I would actually wake up, I would actually set my alarm super early, run into my mom's room and shut off her alarm clock and then go back to bed so that we, I would miss Hebrew school. And then I would act all surprised and be like, oh my God, like, uh, how could this happen? Like, how did I oversleep? Oh, I missed Hebrew school today. Oh, darn it. <laughs> so Shucks. golly gee. Um, the other, the other thing that I had going against me is I was really bad at, I'm really bad at languages. I, I can barely mm. speak Spanish or, or I know a few phrases in French and I could not learn Hebrew to save my life. I was just really, really bad in, in languages. And that was kind of like a sore point because what kid wants to go to school and not only go to school, but do something that they're not particularly like inclined. The one positive thing that I did take was a class. Um, I forgot the name of the class, but we talked about Bible stories and then some, like it was kind of like spiritual investigations into the Bible. And I actually had this very young uh, male teacher by the name of, I think his name was Mr. Benhar. And this guy was freaking awesome because mm -hmm. I was one of those kids that would um, love to ask these like, what if questions? Like we would learn about like, you know, and then, and then someone would go into the holies of holies and they would have like a rope tied to them. And, you know, if they saw the wrong thing, they would be pulled out or they would go in. And then I would be like, well, what if this happened? Or what if the guy opened the door at the last minute and then God didn't see, you know, like I used to be one of these like kids that just had a thousand what if questions. And, mm -hmm. you know, a teacher might find that annoying and, and maybe some did, but he was one of the guys who actually like applauded my curiosity. Mm -hmm. He was like, whoa, good question. And, and, I really like if there was one shining person in that experience, it was him, which is yeah. the, um, the value of having different types of instructors, because there were some people that I had that were just like, man, you sink, you stink at reading Hebrew. And like, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. And, and, and there was that, there was, a, there was those kind of teachers, but then there was yeah. him that kind of like loved, you know, he kind of encouraged my curiosity. Yeah, I got a small um, question for you. And this is yeah. you know, a little bite-sized one, but you know, as a pedagogue, I'm interested. Do you think if you had better teachers, you would have learned Hebrew better? Or do you think it was doomed from the start and it was never going to happen? Like, what, what do you think about that? I, I think having better teachers would have helped. I mm -hmm. do, I do think that I just don't have a proclivity towards language. Mm -hmm. So that, that may have always just been a barrier, but obviously yeah. having, you know, not being inclined to learning languages and having crappy teachers yeah. on top of it, it's just not, each other. Yeah. It compounds each other. So I don't know what would have happened. Hopefully there's a great French teacher out there. I'm trying to learn French. So maybe there'll yeah. be a good French <laughs> teacher I can bump into and <laughs> test this hypothesis out.
at long story short, I end up actually dropping out of Hebrew school before getting bar mitzvahed. Uh-huh. Uh, a huge. Is that no-no. a big? Is that a big no no? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. basically, that's so bar mitzvah actually happens at the age of thirteen. So it's around the same age. Similar as confirmation. to confirmation. Yeah. Yeah, twelve, thirteen. So for girls, it's twelve. For boys, it's thirteen. I guess it takes us our us knuckleheads. It takes longer <laughs> yeah. to mature. <laughs> yeah, crazy how they can observe that thousands of years ago, huh? <laughs> So I, I end up dropping out of Hebrew school, um, but I don't abandon Judaism altogether. Like I, I, I still follow like this holiday called Yom Kippur, which was yep. just on Monday where you fast. And I do pick up the Torah and my relationship with Judaism is very sporadic throughout my early twenties. I take a lot of philosophy classes and I join the philosophy club at my college. While I'm in the philosophy club, I'm also uh, a part of this organization called Hallel and Hallel is a, a Jewish organization. And there's this awesome rabbi also, again, like I, I seem to get along with these like young male mentors. Like that's my, th- like that, that's kind of like the, if I had to pick like a type of educator that I gravitate towards, also a very uh, young rabbi. And he also like Mr. Benhar also encourages that spiritual explanation. Like he answers all of my what if questions and he, he actually invites me and a bunch of other kids to his house on Friday. And we actually uh, observe Shabbat. Like he lives all the way out in Hoboken. And I, I'll never forget that. Like just having somebody who's like, hey, grab on a bus and come spend the weekend at my house. And I'm like, okie dokie. So yeah, I, I think have, maybe that's, that might've been what I was missing, you know, in my, you know, very critical years in my young teen years that I didn't have that mentor or, you know, older, more mature figure who fostered these critical questions that I had instead of saying, these questions are good for your faith and you should pursue them. Yes. That would have really would have pushed me in another direction rather than getting, well, uh, I don't know, or mm, you shouldn't ask those questions. I think maybe that would have been important for me. I have to also give credit to the Reformed Judaism because I think in Reformed Judaism, you can be like more loose in your interpretation. So it's not just Mm -hmm. the rule. It's not just following the rules. It's okay to like question things more and have this like philosophical inquiry as to things like, for example, in Reformed Judaism, there's actually female rabbis, which is a giant. I've never heard of that. Yeah. It's actually, it's a giant no, no in, in the conservative and Orthodox community, but that's through philosophical investigation because when reform Judaism started out, there were no female rabbis, but they had discussion. They were like, well, why can't there be a female? And they went back and forth. Also in, in reform Judaism, the men and women sit next to each other in temple, whereas in Orthodox Judaism, they're actually separated by a, like a, a sheet or a veil, like a veil of some sort that actually separates where the men and the women sit from one another. So I think growing, I'm very grateful to have been raised reform Judaism because that right off the bat teaches you morals and ethics, but at the same time also teaches you critical thinking. So the two are going mm-hmm. hand in hand. And I'm also attending philosophy club and attending Hallel, this Jewish club at the same time. And then it's yeah. kind of all working out in tandem with one another. So, so to offshoot off of, you know, here, what you're talking about, you know, the, the debate and discussion is an important part of reform Judaism. One of, one of my family fem- members, had the, has this theory about, you know, how come Jewish people are such good lawyers? And their theory was that, well, it's because Reform Judaism. Well, I didn't know that it was Reform Judaism, but they said, well, in Judaism, or at least in the Jewish culture, that back and forth, that openness to ideas and argumentation is embedded in their communities. And I thought, I don't know, is that true? But hearing this, it kind of seems like it's lining up. Yeah, the other, I'll give you, I'll give you the short end of this, and, and some yeah. people might disagree with this explanation. Uh, during the Middle Ages, for example, in, in Christianity, only the priest was really allowed to read the Bible. To read, yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. so to read. In Judaism, it's actually commanded that everybody be able mm-hmm. to read the Torah, whether you're a farmer or a peasant. And that kind of, you know, produces a certain, a certain level of like, 
philosophical civic engagement from yeah. even like the guy milking the cows to the rabbi. So, you know, again, people, people don't like that explanation because they're like, well, you know, you can't, you know, that's, you're, you're kind of making an argument towards hereditary and, and other things. Yeah, so it, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's a really great area. It can get but that, murky, but yeah, yeah. it's a murky territory, <laughs> but you're, you're not that's wrong. Like fascinating. But yeah. the critical thinking thing I think does come out a lot in, in reform Judaism. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of, lawyers come from the Jew, uh, the reform Judaism sort of uh, upbringing where questioning things and arguing is okay. So I have both of these figures, you know, in, in my life. There does come a point though, I have to say in my Jewish inquiry where I'm asking a lot of questions and I'm also getting the man, Aaron, we're at a point where you just got to believe at this point. And, and the guy was being super, super nice about it. Like he wasn't uh -huh. trying to like shut the door in my face. It's just that he was being totally honest with like, I just believe it to be true. And, and he didn't say it in a way to like shut me up or be yeah. like, you just have to believe. He was just like, dude, I'm, one, I'm a human being. You're a human being. I just can't answer that question. So I took a pause from my Judaism for several years. I was also dating an atheist girl and that probably had some influence over me as well. Fast forward all the way to, let's say, I think 2017, and I'm going through a bit of a rough patch in my life, and I'm reading all of these uh, self-help books, and I keep seeing the same thing over and over again. Meditate, 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 meditate. Yeah, I noticed and that too. I'm one of these dudes that can't just do something and then be like, okay, I'm just doing it for the sake of, or because this book is telling me. I like to go deeper. So I start reading why meditation works. Oh, it was connected to Buddhism. Let me read what Buddhism says. And I keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. I end up, I would say maybe once a week, I end up uh, traveling to a place called Flushing and attending a Buddhist temple on Saturdays and actually meditating with these people. So I'm getting really, really, really knee deep into Buddhism. I'm reading like tons of books on Buddhism. I'm attending a Buddhist temple. I'm watching YouTube videos. And I, the, the thing that I take away from Buddhism that, that, really, that I really love is this idea of emptiness. It's this idea that we are nothing, that we are completely like malleable, shapeless like figures because there's been so many contradictions in my world. So many times where it's like, oh, well you ought to do this, but well, wait a minute, what if uh, that happens? And Buddhism kind of answers that by saying, well, there is no one universal truth. And it kind of actually is the philosophy behind my podcast in the sense that we are all just empty vessels and we kind of have to conform to the truth around us rather than just being these walking vessels of truth at all time. Because, you know, the truth is only as good as, as what's around us, not, not within us. But anyways... I, I, I love meditating. I, I, to this day, I meditate 30 minutes a day and it, it really helps uh, my thinking just, just, just so much. But this December, I actually had another kind of uh, reawakening with Judaism. There is this thing in Judaism called birthright. And, and birthright is every Jewish person is entitled to uh, one free trip to Israel for 10 days under birthright. Now I thought, uh, that I had missed my uh, window of opportunity because it usually goes until the age of 26. So I was mm -hmm. like, oh, darn it. I, I, I guess I'm not going to Israel ever. It's over. But then they extended the age out to 32. And I, I was just about, you know, I was just about to turn 32. And I was like, I got to do this. Like, this is my last shot. I had, you know, I had just uh, lost my job. And, and I was like, I have the free time. I have like a few more months to make this happen. I'll be like the oldest dude on the trip, but okay, whatever. I need to go on this thing. And well, I, why do you think they did that? Just, just really quickly, sorry to interject, but why do you think they extended the age range? It could be that they, so the, this organization gets a lot of donations and yeah. in order to justify, like in order to like continue getting those justification, uh, those donations, uh, they have yeah, to kind of I'm justify their cause. And maybe yeah. they didn't have like enough young people to fit up all those airplane seats. So they kind mm. of were like, all right, well, let's just extend the window and see what happens and, and so forth. But 
for whatever reason, I, yeah. I am so happy they did that because I, I thought that I thought I had just squandered the best opportunity of my life. But it turns out like I, I went with my brother, actually, and um, it was actually much better. Let me just tell you, from what I've heard, it's much better going as a, not an old person, but like as a as a, as a, a senior yeah, 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 as a as a slightly like let's put it this way. I'm at an age where things have happened to me. Does that yeah. make sense? Yes, yes, yes. I get what you mean. Yeah. It's not your first time around the block. Yeah. Yeah. So things have happened and I can, I'm at an age where I can appreciate things. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're 18 and you go to Israel, uh, the drinking age is younger. So there, I know in Canada, what the drinking age is like. It's 18. It's 18. Okay. 18, yeah. In Sorry. No, it was a 19. I should know. <laughs> Never mind. Not important. But in the state, I guess it relates to this because in the states, the drinking age is 21. So you have all of these 18-year-olds yeah. that want to go to Israel just for the sake of getting drunk. They're just like, yeah. oh, okay, okay, I can go there and get wasted or something. And being an older person going there, you're not obviously going there to, to go to a bar because you could do that here. You're going there to see the sights and and hopefully have some kind of spiritual revelation, and and which I did, and. At the age of um, 31, I actually did get bar mitzvahed out there. <laughs> so nice. that's, what I, that's what I love about Judaism is that, you know, you're never, you're, you're never too old to, to come right back in. And we do have a saying like once a Jew, always a Jew. Like there's no, mm -hmm. there's no, you can call yourself whatever you want to. You're not getting out of this. And mm -hmm. I, I, I think, <laughs> I, I think that's a wonderful thing because I, I have not, you know, since I got back from Israel, I have not negated at all my Buddhist thoughts, but they've actually become even stronger. And I, I think that incorporating, and, and there's actually things about Buddhism and Judaism that actually contradict one another in a very fundamental and very profound way. Um, in Buddhism, for example, a lot of complacency or lack of desire is sort of stressed upon the individual like oh if you're working at this job that you don't like you just have to make it work or you have to you can't desire too much otherwise that will kind of breed unhappiness and you sort of have to be complacent in the moment whereas judaism is the complete opposite of that it's action 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 you mm -hmm. have to be out there arguing you have to be there fighting for what it is that you want every single day and these things are kind of at contradiction they're kind of at odds with one another but i think i've reached a stage where i'm able to actually have both of these contradictory viewpoints and make sense of it yeah well regarding that particular conflict that particular tension that you're talking about it brings up the idea of collectivism versus individualism for me like i'm i'm half i'm biracial i'm half chinese so i'm often observing well East Asian ways of thinking versus Western ways of thinking. And what you're bringing up is inaction versus action. To me, it's ringing bells of, well, maintaining the status quo and being at peace and ensuring that things are functioning and stable and secure. That is more important than getting out there and doing all the actions. And I wonder if that is part of what I'm seeing in the individualist versus the collectivist dichotomy that is often brought up. That, that's a really interesting thing that, you know, attention that you're kind of dealing with because I feel that that is something that I have seen and dealt with too. Uh, another thing I kind of want to reach back to was about the, you know, the attraction you have towards Buddhism is the idea that truths, you know, one objective clear truth doesn't necessarily exist. And that really brings to mind the, uh, the koans, these, you know, stories that are essentially paradoxes that don't have answers and they don't seem to make any sense, but it's really important to understanding kind of East Asian paradigms of understanding the universe. For example, the gateless gate. In huh. order to become enlightened, you have to pass through the gateless gate, a gate that has no gate. But then you're sitting there reading that and you're thinking, how am I supposed to pass through a gate that doesn't have a gate? And then, you know, my professor went, exactly. And we're all like, what? You're not like, you're not, you're not, the, the idea of enlightenment is not something that can just be explained to you. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's rife with paradox and contradiction. Just the idea that if, if I could just tell you how to be enlightened, we would all be enlightened. So I can't put it into words. And yet, we need to study it somehow. So how do we do that? We read these paradoxes and these contradictions and we just have to settle with them. We just have to understand that, yes, to attain enlightenment, I have to pass through the gateless gate. It doesn't mm. make sense, but I need to 
You know, I don't even need to figure it out. I need to be at peace with the fact that these two things cannot be reconciled. Yeah, that, that's, that's, ve- that's very interesting. You know, as regards so, to your original point with the, with the complacency versus the action, mm-hmm. I see the complacency uh, and I find solace in Buddhism with the things I can't control. And mm-hmm. I find solace in Buddhism with like material, like senseless material stuff. Yeah. Like I echoes think, of stoicism are. Yeah, 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 well, yeah. It's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely intertwined with the stoicism, mm-hmm. and that I find a lot of solace, and I find a lot of salvation in Buddhism when it's like, oh, Buddhism helps me not crave a new car or a bigger house, and so, like that I find a lot of help with. Now, when it comes to pursuing a goal or an ambition that's where my judaism kind of kicks in full gear like i think Mm -hmm. that my judaism tells me you need to start a podcast or you need to like switch your change careers or you need to do x y and z whereas buddhism would be like whoa hang tight buddy you know just like it's okay it doesn't matter what you're doing for a living everything in the universe yeah Yeah, exists there in the universe it's all cool whether you're Mm -hmm. uh you know a lawyer or a baker it's all this it's all good man you know Mm -hmm. and that's something where my judaism is like no you have to find what your potential is and you gotta accelerate on it and Mm -hmm. again these things kind of contradict one another but if you apply like Buddhism and complacency to certain facets of your life, like materialism, uh, stupid things that are out of my control, how other people perceive or react to me. That's where I, I kind of latch on to Buddhism. And then if I take my ambition and sort of latch on to Judaism with that, I can actually have a, a, a quasi functional worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a happy, <laughs> yeah. a happy middle road. And all sit, all things seek the middle road. Well, yeah. actually, I don't know if that's really a middle road. I don't know if you've heard of this term. I was just looking it up right before our podcast. It's called syncretism. I'm not sure if it's a r- real thing. Uh, someone on YouTube was talking about it. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but syncretism is essentially cherry picking the elements of certain religions and meshing them together into something that functions and works for you. And the key is to pick things that aren't directly um, at odds with each other and then blending those things together. Or if they are at odds with each other, at least properly categorize them so yes. they don't clash, right? So maybe syncretism, maybe, maybe you and I are both syncretists, Aaron. Maybe that's, that's if I can ever, pron- if I learn to pronounce that word, I'll call myself that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just think um, synchronize and then put the ism there. I, I, I needed a few practices at it myself. I, I mean, I, I kind of also like the word agnostic now. Um, it took me mm. a long time to eventually pronounce that, but I was like, I like this state of just never quite knowing. And I'll say like, mm. I'm an agnostic. I, I, I would say that I'm an agnostic that believes in God and has Jewish and Buddhist inclinations like like mm-hmm. that that is the i know that's like a, a mouthful but that's the closest thing that i can approximate my worldview to from a from a spiritual perspective and it, it brings me like great healthiness and like if if there is something like i have been reading a little um christianity as of late and and things that jesus said and i'm like whoa there are some awesome things there too that mm-hmm. i ought to kind of like pay pay heed to so I am kind of choosing things from other religions. Now, I did actually bump into um, a a Christian fundamentalist, and I did get into this with him a little bit. And he actually made some some, a strong point, and I want to get your thoughts on this. He said, "Okay, if you're eating at the buffet of all these religions, right? What happens when one religion has a rule or a law that you don't particularly like?" but might end up being helpful to you. And he actually did get me there. He actually did corner me because if we are eating at the buffet of spirituality and just eating and picking and choosing, then there is this, like, I I hate to say it, but he is right. Like there is this like uh, inclination to just choose all the easy stuff and all the Mm -hmm. things that taste good and like, oh yeah, meditate and do this and that. But then when it comes to like, oh, I have to fast for 25 hours on Yom Kippur, or I have to fast for a month on Ramadan, or I can't eat fish during uh, meat during Lent or anything like that. Mm-hmm. There is this inclination to kind of avoid all the hard things that religion tells us to do. 
but those things might actually make us better human beings. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think this, this fellow you're talking to does have a very good point. For example, you can't kind of be Catholic. That's not really how it's supposed to be. It's either you are or you aren't. And if you don't do the things you're supposed to do, you're not really Catholic. And I think that's, that is also true with lots of other religions too, Judaism, Islam. You can't, I don't know, I don't know the details of it, but I imagine you can't be kind of Islamic. It's either you are, you are or you aren't. I guess maybe it depends on who you ask and we're getting into other things now. But hmm, I think what my initial reaction to what you just brought up was, well, maybe these things that are difficult and that are hard, maybe they're archaic. Maybe they're not necessary. Maybe they're worth throwing out. Maybe we should streamline the religion to only take the good parts out of it. And my follow-up to that is, what's wrong with doing that? If I'm not trying to get into Catholic heaven, it's reminding me of that Simpsons episode where there's Catholic heaven and regular heaven. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm not trying to get into Catholic heaven, then maybe it's okay that I don't go to confession and I well, can still reap the benefits of that religion. Okay, I, I will, I'll push back a little bit here. Because yes, for sure, please do. On, on Monday was the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. And for those who, who don't know on this holiday, you're not allowed to eat or drink or use any electricity for 25 hours. You can't even write. The only thing you can do is, is just read Torah and, and read um, another prayer book. And I actually observed it this Monday. And it's, it actually falls into one of the categories of like, well, that's not fun Hanukkah Judaism. Yeah. That's kind of hardship Judaism. But I will say that like every single time that I observe Yom Kippur, it is by far, by far my favorite holiday, more so than Rosh Hashanah, more so than Hanukkah or any of the quote fun holidays. Because I, when you, when your stomach starts growling, Mm -hmm. you, you do feel this intense spiritual energy and you are thinking about things in a way that you just, you can't think of them on a full belly. Like when your belly is uh, filled with water and food, you take so many things for granted in your thoughts and your, your evaluation of yourself is like, you think you're such a better person than you actually are. But then when you're starving, you're like, yeah, this is the reality. So Mm -hmm. If we kind You're really of, selling this fasting thing to me. Yeah, yeah. I kind of no, no. want to try it now. <laughs> try it. I actually, I actually, one year I actually celebrated Yom Kippur. I actually somehow convinced an atheist and a Muslim to celebrate this holiday with me. Yeah. And it was, it was an awesome spiritual journey in the woods. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it is, it is like one of those things where if we kind of just like put all the hard things on the cutting room floor, then you will never have that exposure to something difficult that might have hidden wisdom. Like our ancestors might have seen hidden wisdom in some of these rituals. And if we don't do them at all, we may not like unlock them. That's true. How how about, how about a compromise where you have to try it at least once? I like that. that. Like if you do it and you find that it's useful and beneficial to you, then by all means, then, then it's not something you want to cut out because it's, you've reaped the benefit of it. But then if you do it and you find, okay, well, do I really need to avoid eating shrimp when I go out for sushi? Is that really going to bring me closer to my spirituality? Maybe I won't do that one. But then to be fair, you could also say in response to that, well, some things you have to do multiple times. If you tried as a kid, that's going to be different than when you tried as a teenager, than when you tried as a young adult, than when you tried as a middle-aged person and as a senior. So yeah, I think, you know, that, that fundamentalist has a point and I think that's worth thinking about too, but I I like this idea of trying it at least once because like I I have, you know, there's been times in my life where I didn't eat pork for a while. I didn't eat cheeseburger. Like in Judaism, you can't mix cheese and meats and beef together. And I've tried it. And for some things, like if I don't see the logical conclusion, like if I don't see the logical purpose behind it, it's really difficult for me to follow it. I'm like, how is not eating this cheeseburger going to make me a better person? I, and I have given it a shot. I didn't feel, I don't, I don't really like cheeseburgers, but anyway, it's, a, it's like one of these things. <laughs> it's the where, principle of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's one of these things where it's like, I don't really see this spiritually uplifting me. And therefore, that's why I'm negating it. I'm not negating it because I find it difficult. I'm negating it because 
I don't lie. I'm not feeling more spiritual. I'm not feeling like a better person or something like Yom Kippur. I actually do feel the awesomeness of that holiday. Yeah. So to, to kind of go off that, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, another theory that one of my family members have uh, about um, it's, it's pertinent to Judaism, but also Catholicism, the idea that, and, and Islam too, really, the reasons why we have these rules or precepts of things we're not supposed to do isn't actually necessarily related to spirituality. It had to do with the survival of the community. So for example, we don't eat pork because pigs were typically unclean and we would get disease from them way back in the day before we had refrigeration and proper manufacturing techniques. Same thing with shellfish. And so now that we're in a different era, perhaps it's archaic. And that's why, you know, most people don't find it spiritually relevant anymore. It's because it served a different purpose back then and it was incorporated into religious life, which just was regular life. But now that we can kind of separate those two, it's no longer relevant. Do you think that that kind of idea holds holds water here? I must say that I probably agree with that because mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, the pig was always a filthy animal and it, it logically it kind of makes sense as to why mm-hmm. that animal would be on the do not eat list, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and people probably ate the people who did eat pork probably got really sick. They may have died. And then it's only natural for these people to kind of conclude, yeah, it looks like God doesn't want us eating yeah, that creature over there. Yeah. You know, like I, I can totally see that is. And there's also one thing that I keep pointing to, especially when we get into like really, really dogmatic teachings of any religion is how many times have these books been edited? How many times have like things been put in there, taken out and, you know, King, King James version, this and this and that. I'm like, you know, King James was a guy, right? Like, I, I you know, like who, who's, yeah, he, he was who's a guy. To, yeah. Who's to say that he got like, he got like the perfect edit, you know, maybe, yep. maybe we should be looking at the director's cut of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know mm-hmm. what, what, what exactly is like the right formulation. So, when I see something in any religion where it's, man, th- that just doesn't logically make any sense. I'll, you know, maybe I'll give it a shot and see how it goes. I kind of think that it's just poor editing. I, I think mm-hmm. maybe you're yeah. mixing another religion in there or you're mixing some off. Maybe there was some crazy fundamentalist guy who lived in, you know, the seventh century and he wrote this and that somehow got copy and pasted into the real Bible. I don't know what, but it, it, it's, it is like, we do have to question what's in there. Yeah. And I think this might be a a nice little segue into how I interact with the Bible nowadays, because like I said, you know, at at the top of the podcast, I know these stories inside and out. I read them all. I know them and I believe them, you know, with my heart and my soul. But then I went through my atheist phase and I went, no, this is all myths and child stories and none of it's real and it's all lies. And now I'm coming back to it and understanding it through the eyes of, mythology and wisdom and stories and legends. And this is, you know, I I still think, you know, regardless of what religion you are, I think studying religious texts has really valuable cultural value. They're worth reading, not to believe in, but to just understand the development of humanity and history. Yes. And this is kind of where I think an agnostic differs from that of an atheist. So I think, you know, especially when you were talking about like the early 2000s and you got your Richard Dawkins, who was like, oh, that's utter complete rubbish. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, 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 he just like, he was really hardcore on this being utter, utter nonsense. And anyone who even dares pick up a Bible and open it is just a primitive monkey yeah. and so forth. And I, I think that's a very like unenlightened view of wisdom and, and and, and moral truth, because yes. I think that if you pick up any holy book of any sort, at least 70, 75, maybe 80% of that stuff is chocolatey goodness. Like, they, 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 mm-hmm. it is really, really, really good what's in there. And you can't allow the 25% that is like, all right, well, that doesn't really make sense to kind of negate yeah. that entire book. And that's, I, I still think that we're in the throes uh, of this problem today where it's like you have to be you either are a bible thumping christian or you're a complete atheist and there is no in between and that's the danger that we're living in right now yeah the the loss of new ones well i I wonder if 
nuanced people have always said this at, in any time period of human development where they go, we're losing nuance. We're losing nuance. It's kind of like how old people say the young people are always um, rebelling and are disrespectful. Like I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you to think, yeah, I think in the era of Twitter, in the era <laughs> and, and you know, the post-truth era of fake news Trump that we are losing the nuance. But I wonder if I asked the same question 20 years ago, would people in 2000 say we're losing nuance in the 80s, in the 50s, in the 1600s, in the, in, in, you know, in the Pharisees in, in 1 AD? I, I wonder. I'm not sure. What do you, what do you think? I, I, from my, again, very short time on this earth, we are mm -hmm. definitely becoming less nuanced. I, I, and mm -hmm. I think it has to do, and I did, I, do, I did a previous episode on the fact that we're reading books a lot less. Yeah, that is true. We, like the people, like, for example, when I had that spiritual instructor, Mr. Benhar, right? This was back in the 90s. And that man today would be highly and spiritually sophisticated by, you know, which is, which is sad that you have a figure that lived, he, I'm sure he's still alive. He was a really young guy, but mm -hmm. <laughs> he, like his spiritual level of sophistication was really, really, really high. And I'm noticing that that, is starting to be on the decline. Like it's starting mm -hmm. to get to a more like, well, it's, it's all or nothing, buddy. You know, you're mm -hmm. either on this team or you're not. And yeah. you're, you're either a Richard Dawkins hardcore atheist or you are following every, the religion to a T. And I kind of wish that we went back to the nuance. And I think that's what reformed Judaism was all about. It was all about the nuance. It was all about the like, well, let's sit down and talk about that, that, passage from the bible and see if we agree with it and that that is getting lost i don't know mm -hmm. why it is it could be twitter it, it could be something else yeah like i think you know the 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 era of the internet has brought on the ability for us to not be exposed to new viewpoints i think that's true we create these social media echo chambers for ourselves but i think also at the same time it's worth giving some credit to the internet in allowing us the possibility to be exposed if we so choose to find these other viewpoints and to seek out this nuance. For example, what we're doing right now, a long form internet podcast, us being two strangers who met on a philosophy meetup group. <laughs> there's no way that would have been possible 30 years ago. Yeah. And yet it's happening now. But you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to be optimistic when, you know, especially off the heels of the presidential debate, it is really, really hard to think no nuance is still alive and well and it's growing because I, I find that funny that you're you're safe in Canada but you're still feeling the the the, the wave yeah. impact of, of of that happening down the border um yes, yes for sure man. I, I had a meeting with my financial advisor and she's like you know maybe we should hold off until after the election because that's going to change what we do with you know with your finances and I'm like yeah yeah I, I understand um you, you know I I, I think you know, go, going back into the topic of religion. Yes. And, and again, I, I also attend like a lot of Jordan Peterson meetups. His, 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 the atheist hate Jordan Peterson because he refers to mythology. He refers to religion a lot in his lectures. And the atheist folks fight back and say, we've got science, dude. Like mm -hmm. we've got empiricism. We've got, you know, uh, SPSS and R and Python. Like yeah. you talking about mythology, you know, you're totally last century. And mm -hmm. there has to be a way that we can combine both of these forms of wisdom and knowledge together. No one's saying that we should go back to just reading mythology and just give up empiricism. But I'm like, wh why can't we just have both and then fill in the gate, you know, sort of fill in the gaps with either or when the time necessitates. Yeah, I, th I thought that Jordan Peterson did that very well. He took the religious stories and he treated them as myths or cultural artifacts that reveal something about human psychology. Yeah. The story of Cain and Abel tells us something about murder and hatred. And we can learn from that in a very psychoanalytic kind of way. I mean, of course, of course, you know, you're going to get caught if you kill your brother and there's only like four of you on the on the earth, you're, you're going to get caught by God. So why did he do that? Why do people go and murder the way they do? And I thought, you know, that was a fantastic revelation for me that he used the old wisdom, the psychoanalytic paradigm to come up with something kind of new. 
but maybe I took that so well because I am not a hardcore Christian. Neither am I a hardcore atheist. I'm something in the middle, so I can appreciate that. But I also, I also like the fact that he has a, you know, a, a science background. Like he has a PhD in psychology. Sure. Yeah. He's not a PhD in theology. He's a PhD in psychology, and he's kind of able to blend both of these wor worlds together because in his lectures in one sentence he's referring to like testosterone and chemical imbalances and then at the very in the very next tone uh, turn he's referring to something that happened in ancient greece so he's able to kind of he's like a hybrid of being able to take ancient wisdom and take science and and make sense of the world and i think mm -hmm. all of these things that we have mythology religion science what's the goal it's to make sense of the world so does it really matter which which tool we're using i mean yes they do they do conflict with each other like if we're talking about like evolution versus creationism and so forth but there's a lot of areas where okay well science is still a giant question mark on that issue maybe we ought to bring in some of the ancient stuff to fill in the, the blanks yeah and i think that for the general populace that's what we should be doing. We should be trying to pull as many things from as many different arenas in order to make sense of the world. We shouldn't solely be pulling from the church. We shouldn't solely be pulling from science. We shouldn't solely be pulling from the government. We shouldn't solely be pulling from our family. I think that an informed and educated citizen, and not even citizen, I don't even need to bring the state into this, an educated <laughs> and informed human person should be trying to observe the world around them and incorporate all of the things to make sense of what's in front of them. And I think that's what philosophy is. Philosophy isn't necessarily only about history, only about science, only about math, only about literature, only about psychology. It, well, I, I guess you could see it as being segmented into psychological philosophy, music philosophy, blah, 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 blah. But I think to the general public, to the average philosopher, that's what you do. You, you, you pull in the best arguments from wherever you see them and you construct something in front of you. I was listening to a philosophy bites podcast just the other day. And someone said that, yes, it's important to have academic philosophers, but it's also important for everyone to be doing philosophy because whether or not you realize it, you are doing it. And it's kind of like oxygen. Yes. We need chemical professors. We need chemical engineers who understand oxygen on this very deep level, but all of us everywhere, need oxygen and we should probably have an idea of how it works so that's kind of how he uh i i, I don't know the name of it, but it was one of the first philosophy bites podcasts that i listened to and it was yeah that's how i kind of like to think of it and it's kind of pulling in everything a amen daniel amen yeah. uh daniel thank you so much for being on the show today yes thank you very much it was it was a pleasure i'd love to come back sometime if you'll have me absolutely this concludes the 32nd episode of the truth island podcast i'm aaron asrod